purposely disseminated false allegations of fraud in order to aid his effort to overturn the 2020 election. The House January 6th committee reveals the key findings of its investigation coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. As the January 6th committee wraps up its hearings, a recent NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds a majority of Americans believe democracy is at risk and want members of Congress to compromise. Anderson Cooper on his podcast, All There Is, which explores grief and loss. Also, we'll take a look at the legacy of superstar soccer player Lionel Messi of Argentina. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Never before has Congress referred a former president for criminal prosecution until today. The House Select Committee investigating the January 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol is recommending that the Department of Justice criminally prosecute former President Donald Trump, who is running for president in 2024. The panel is targeting Trump and several election-denying allies, including members of Congress, for the roles they played surrounding the attack. NPR's Lexi Chappell reports on the Bipartisan Committee's final public hearing this afternoon, which caps an 18-month investigation that included interviews with more than 100 witnesses. The committee has voted to refer former President Trump to the Department of Justice for prosecution on four criminal charges, including inciting an insurrection, obstruction of an official government proceeding, and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Congressman Jamie Raskin said the panel has, quote, more than sufficient evidence to support the unprecedented move. We have gone where the facts and the law lead us, and inescapably, they lead us here. The referrals carry symbolic weight but are not legally binding. The Justice Department has been concurrently conducting its own investigation into the attack on the Capitol. Lexi Chapital, NPR News. A group of Republican-led states has asked the Supreme Court to pause a judge's ruling that would end pandemic restrictions at the southern border. NPR's Joel Rose reports those restrictions known as Title 42 are set to end this week. Republican attorneys general from 19 states are asking the Supreme Court to block a lower court ruling that found the Title 42 restrictions unlawful. The policy, first put in place by the Trump administration, has allowed immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants more than two million times without giving them a chance to seek asylum. The Biden administration is preparing for Title 42 to end this week. The number of migrant apprehensions is already climbing, straining the resources of immigration authorities and border communities. The same group of states already asked a federal appeals court to extend Title 42, but the court found those states waited too long to intervene in the case. Joel Rose, NPR News. Nearly 200 countries have struck a historic deal to slow the rate at which species are going extinct because of human activity. Most significant part of the agreement announced today at the Biodiversity Summit, known as COP15 in Montreal, is a global commitment on 30 by 30, the initiative to protect 30 percent of the planet's land and water by the end of this decade. But Monica Cock-Magnuson, a Belize-based attorney and an outspoken advocate for indigenous people's rights, says she and others believe the agreement failed to ensure land and territorial protections of the very people whose traditions are rooted in sustainable living. Our concern in this target is that we would hate that at the end of the day, our lands get taken away in the name of conservation. The deal calls for hundreds of billions in financing, especially to assist island nations and developing countries. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are echoing the sentiments of the U.S. House January 6th committee. Today, the committee recommended federal criminal charges be brought against former President Donald Trump. Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted this afternoon that no one is above the law, not even a former president of the U.S. And Congressman Jake Auchincloss says Trump must never again hold public office and should be prosecuted. Trump has declared he's a candidate for president. Massachusetts Gaming Commission has approved a sports betting license for MGM Springfield. Today's vote marks the second sports betting retail license granted by the commission. Encore Boston Harbor in Everett received the first license earlier this month. If all goes according to plan, retail sports betting in the state should launch by the end of the month. Online sports betting is slated to begin in March. People with disabilities and mobility issues will now be able to access the MBTA's Green Line Symphony Station because of new federal funding. The Federal Transit Administration is making $66 million available to the MBTA for the project. FDA Administrator Nuria Fernandez said that the work will make travel easier. They're going to put in uh, elevators, they're going to raise the platforms, uh, which will all make traveling much easier uh, from that station. In total, the federal government is awarding $686 million to nine states to address access to some of the country's oldest and busiest rail systems. This is funded through the bipartisan infrastructure law President Biden signed last year. The city of Boston is launching a $14.5 million program to expand music education for its youngest students. The program's funded by a grant secured by the New England Conservatory of Music. It'll be free for all students. The funds will be used to expand early childhood music education, allow access to the conservatory's slate of music lessons, and provide instruments for kids. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu recounted the important role music played in her life when she was a child. Growing up in an immigrant family, music was our connection, my family's connection, to transcend the language barriers that my family faced, cultural barriers, the ways in which communication could be a burden. The New England Conservatory will also expand scholarships for students' lessons starting this fall. 37 degrees in the Boston area. The clear weather from today should continue tonight. Some strong winds now and then. Lows about 29 degrees. Tomorrow should make it to about 39 with sunny skies once again. Not too much of a change for Wednesday, right about 40 for a high. 37 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The House January 6th panel has officially referred former President Donald Trump for criminal charges related to the attack on the Capitol and Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss. The Democratic-led panel today outlined a series of charges it is sending to the Department of Justice. Benny Thompson, a Mississippi Democrat, is the panel's chair, and he said this about Trump. He lost the 2020 election and knew it. But he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. 
Let's discuss this news with NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson and Congressional Correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Hello to both of you. Hi there. Hey, Juana. Okay, so let's start by walking through what happened today. The panel discussed its findings, much of which we had already heard, and Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland ultimately named the referrals. Here's part of what he said. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. So, Carrie, what were the charges outlined against former President Trump today? There were four charges that were mentioned at this public hearing. The first is obstruction of an official proceeding. The second is conspiracy to defraud the United States. The third is conspiracy to make a false statement. And the fourth is to incite, assist, or aid and comfort an insurrection. Let's unpack this a little bit. Carrie, what stands out to you about that? You know, some of these charges have been used against the rioters at the Capitol on January 6th, but insurrection is rarely used and is a very serious political and legal matter. Congressman Jamie Raskin called it a, quote, grave federal offense and said nothing could be a greater betrayal of a president's duty. The last prosecution I found for insurrection was in the Civil War era. One of the other charges that stands out is the conspiracy to make a false statement. That relates to the scheme to substitute slates of fake electors in 2020. We know the Justice Department has been very active on that front, sending out lots of subpoenas. The committee has had documents from law professor John Eastman that may incriminate both him and Donald Trump. What about for you, Deirdre? I know we've been wondering about these criminal referrals for some time now. We have, and there was a lot of internal debate inside the January 6th committee about how many individuals they would refer to the Justice Department. Throughout these public hearings, though, members of the committee have really been hammering home the theme that then President Trump was really the central player behind the effort to overturn the 2020 election results. Vice Chair Liz Cheney today said the evidence they outlined shows Trump should be disqualified. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. But we should note these criminal referrals by the January 6th committee are largely symbolic. The committee can't prosecute it. But several members have been saying in the days leading up to today's final hearing that there are a lot of individuals who were at the Capitol on January 6th who have been sentenced to jail time for trespassing, assaulting police officers, destroying property. But they say the masterminds of the scheme needed to be held accountable. So, Carrie, to you on the investigative side, what happens next now? You know, we have multiple grand juries in federal court in Washington, D.C. that are marching forward. Much of this work is done in secrecy, so we don't know exactly what DOJ is doing and when. They, there has been a flurry of subpoenas on the slates of fake electors and to state officials who were harassed by Trump and Rudy Giuliani, his lawyer, and to state officials who seem to cooperate with Donald Trump. Justice has already compelled some key figures to talk in the grand jury, like Trump's White House counsel. And the new special counsel, Jack Jack Smith has been busy working. He says the pace of investigations will not slow or flag under his watch. And we also learned about some referrals to the House Ethics Committee against a number of lawmakers. Deirdre, what can you tell us about that? Right. There were five House Republicans who were subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and Ohio Republican Jim Jordan were among those. They both talked to Trump on January 6th and have publicly talked about their conversations with him. 
Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry, Arizona Republican Andy Biggs, were in touch with some of the outside attorneys and justice officials who were in discussions about this plot not to certify the 2020 election. Those four House Republicans were referred to the House Ethics Committee today for sanctions for not complying with the committee's subpoenas. The fifth, uh, Alabama Republican Mo Brooks, was subpoenaed, but he was not referred today. He's not coming back. Next year, he lost in a primary and a Senate race. But really, in reality, the session of Congress is about to wrap up at the end of the year, and the House Ethics Committee is not likely to take any action against these four House Republicans. The panel is evenly divided by four House Republicans, four House Democrats, and Republicans, even if they had time, would not likely vote to to proceed with any real investigation. So, Carrie, in addition to the four referred charges that you laid out earlier in our conversation, the panel raised the idea of seditious conspiracy in its report. What did it say? This didn't come up at the televised hearing, but in the written summary, the committee mentioned the seditious conspiracy statute, and that involves trying to overthrow the government by using force. The committee said DOJ has more tools than Congress, like subpoena power and uh, the use of the grand jury to compel people's testimony, and the Justice Department may have enough evidence to prosecute former President Trump for seditious conspiracy. You know, just last month, the jury here in D.C. convicted Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and his deputy. Kelly Meggs of seditious conspiracy. Members of the far-right group The Proud Boys also face that charge. Wanna, even if the Justice Department does not wind up charging Donald Trump with seditious conspiracy, the whole idea that the word sedition is in the same sentence as a man who occupied the Oval Office says something pretty serious about where we are right now. So Deirdre, how have Republicans responded? I mean, most Republicans have been dismissing the January 6th committee as partisan. I heard from Jim Jordan, spokesman on the ethics referral. He called it, quote, a partisan and political stunt. It is worth noting that Jim Jordan is slated to chair the House Judiciary Committee next year when Republicans take control of the House. For his part, former President Trump has been on social media today focused on border issues. He's already been casting doubt on the Justice Department's probe. All along, Trump has criticized this House committee. He's called it the unselect committee. He's called it a witch hunt. So it's sort of more of the same in in terms of Republican response today. And Deirdre, before I let you go, you were there for the hearing. Um, This is a hearing from a panel that's almost done, that's set to expire next Congress. Four of the committee members are not returning next Congress. What was it like today? It was actually pretty subdued in in the hearing compared to earlier public hearings. I mean, they were sort of wrapping up all of the evidence they've been putting together over the last 18 months. As you said, they don't really have much time left before the panel expires at the end of the year. Raskin said he thought they did a comprehensive job. Mm-hmm. I think one lasting impact is this committee really changed the format for congressional hearings. It was very effective at creating a narrative, okay. something you usually don't see um, in, at congressional hearings. NPR's Deirdre Walsh and Carrie Johnson, thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Kate Baker. About 20 years ago, Kate, her husband Bob, and their two-year-old son Neil were on a flight to Europe. All of a sudden, Neil developed a fever and began having a seizure. The flight attendants were going up and down the aisle asking anyone if they were a doctor, if they could take a look at him. Then one of the flight attendants asked my husband, who was holding Neil, is he breathing? 
and he said, just barely. I was standing in the aisle. Well, when I heard those words, I think I must have gone into shock because I couldn't feel anything and I couldn't speak. Then I noticed three women passengers get out of their seats and come toward me. They were Muslim women wearing the hijab and they came to me and put their arms around me and they stood there with me with their arms around me until the flight attendant told us that we should move to the front of the plane and take a seat up there. We arrived in Amsterdam and went directly to the clinic. They couldn't find anything wrong with Neil. And by that time he was fine, but we got on another plane in a few hours and went back home to New Jersey. We went immediately to a pediatrician who discovered that Neil had just had an ear infection and he had a seizure because his temperature spiked very rapidly on the plane. So Neil was fine. We treated him for the ear infection and everything was fine. But I never forgot those women and how supportive they were. I grew up in a place where there were no Muslims, very few people of color, and everyone spoke English. So that encounter was very new for me. I will never forget them and what they did for me. We may not speak the same language or share the same beliefs or religion, but none of that really matters to me because we can connect on a very deep human level. So if I ever saw those women again, I would just say thank you so much and I love you. Kate Baker of Middlesex, New Jersey. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, CNN's Anderson Cooper talks about grieving and surviving the loss of loved ones. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving in Melrose and at buckaloosgeneralstore.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed lower for fourth day. The Dow lost about a half percent, 163 points, to end the day at 32,758. S&P was down nine-tenths of a percent to finish at 38.19. The Nasdaq fell nearly one and a half percent to end the day at 10,546. The average price of gasoline in Massachusetts has dropped nine cents in the past week. The latest survey by AAA Northeast puts the statewide average at 3.45 a gallon. That's more than 30 cents higher than the national average. In Boston, the average is $3.49. It's 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 
37 degrees in the Boston area. If you like today's weather, you're in luck because tomorrow and Wednesday should be pretty much the same. A good deal of sunshine, dry and brisk. Highs right around 39 or 40. The gray weather should hold off until Thursday. 37 in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd, this film is rated R. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Most of us are used to hearing CNN's Anderson Cooper sound like this. We begin tonight with breaking news. Moments ago, a federal judge at least temporarily reversed... There you have the serious, in-control anchor of Anderson Cooper 360. But have you heard him sound like this? This will be great for our cabaret act. Yes. What should we call it? Gloria and Co. (laughs) That way, if you fire me, you can get somebody else and not have to change the title. (laughs) Or have you heard him sound like this? Somewhere in these notes and and these boxes that I got to go through, I hope to find something that helps me to, to make sense of all this, that eases the pain of their absence. Those last two are Anderson Cooper on his new podcast, All there is. It's about the grief he felt when his mother died and the grief that has defined his life since his father died when he was 10 and his brother, who died by suicide when Anderson was 21. Cooper explores that grief with guests including Stephen Colbert, Laurie Anderson, and Molly Shannon, who've weathered their own losses. Anderson Cooper, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. Can we start with that giggle, which makes me laugh? You sound exactly like your mom. Did you know that before you recorded her? No, it's the weirdest thing. I didn't know that. I mean, I've always had this weird giggle. I never knew where it came from. And my mom didn't find out she had cancer until about 12 days before she died. And the day the doctor told her that she had cancer and that there wasn't really nothing to be done about it, she had made a joke and she started to giggle and I started to giggle. And I was recording it, and it was only after she died that I listened to it that I realized we had the exact same giggle. (laughs) Which is a great giggle. (laughs) Yeah, it was so crazy that I hadn't known that previously. Yeah. The thing you said about this that resonated so with me was that feeling of when you lost her, you lost, you know, the last the last of your original nuclear family, the the family of four who knew like all the stories, all the memories, and now you're the last one standing. Stories like what? I mean, would you share one? You know, just the, the millions of things that happen in your childhood, those small minor, you know, nothing things like the sounds my brother made when he would come in and put the keys down on the table next to the front door and take off his shoes and, you know, the way he would like swipe his hair while talking sometimes, you know, and and moments of me curling up on my dad's lap and hearing the sound of his heartbeat and, uh, and all these things. um, Yeah. To, to realize I, I had, I had anticipated my mom's death, obviously, 
Um, I knew I'd be ready for it. I wasn't ready for that feeling of loneliness. I, you know, the other death um, that listening to the podcast, it's clear you still can't talk about uh, without choking up was your brother um, by suicide when you were both very young. Um, and as I listened to you talk about it, I kept wanting to to answer back to you and say, I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. And as that went through my head, I thought, you know, it's so necessary to say that to someone. And it also feels so utterly inadequate to the loss yeah. you still feel. Have you, as you made the podcast, as you've investigated your grief and others figured out, is there a right thing to say? Like, are there right words? Yeah. You know, I thought about that, gosh, a lot. You know, one thing I would, I do think it's nice to ask somebody, people often say like my mom died or, you know, if you meet somebody on a date, say, and you're getting to know them, they'll say, oh, my brother died or my mom died. And people rarely ever ask you what the name of your loved one was. And I think there's something nice about not just saying, I'm sorry for your loss, but what was their name? Um, because I think there's great power, excuse me. I think there's great power in saying somebody's name and, and keeping the name alive. May I ask you that? Would you name your family for me? Yeah. Uh, my brother's name was Carter, Carter Vanderbilt Cooper. Uh, my dad's name was Wyatt Emery Cooper. And my son is named Wyatt after my dad. And your mom, Gloria. Yeah, my mom, Gloria. And I, I also in the podcast included my, uh, I had a, a nanny who was as much a mother to me as anybody has been. Uh, and her name was Mae McClendon. I've never spoken to you before today, but I've watched you on screen a lot. And um, you strike me as a very private person carrying something heavy um, and doing a very public job. Is that fair? Yeah, that's totally true. And yeah, it's an odd thing. I am in a, I have a public job and my parents were well known, especially my mom, uh, I knew a lot of famous people growing up. And so I was a witness to people who had public jobs and I saw the benefits of it and I saw the price of it. And I became very reserved and very private as a little kid and remain that to this day, even though I have projected myself into the public sphere in the job that I do. You put the same question to every one of your guests on the podcast, and it was this. Any advice for someone out there who has lost someone or is losing someone? So I'll put it to you. Any advice? I think the thing I've struggled with the most is a feeling of loneliness and isolation and grief. And look, I, I didn't deal with a lot of this stuff for a long time. My dad died when I was 10 years old, and I retreated into myself, I became a much more reserved person. And something I learned through, frankly, talking with the people I talk with on the podcast and from the listeners who have written to me are a number of things. One, the knowledge that I'm not alone in this, that all of us have gone through loss or will go through loss. And to know that this is a road that generations of people have traveled and that this is part of what being a human being is. And you can't have joy without sadness. You can't have life without death. And that helps. You know, Stephen Colbert, I think, who I think was one of the most powerful 
I, th I think he's an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily thoughtful conversation. He yeah, had with he's you. able to yeah. speak about this in ways that that really blew my mind. Um, and one of the things he has talked about it, he references a, a Tolkien quote. Tolkien wrote to somebody saying, "You know, what if God's punishments are not gifts?" It talks about learning to love the thing you most wish had never happened, coming to love even the things which are terrible, which happened to you, the death of my brother, the, the death of my mother, the death of my father and my, my nanny, learning to, to be grateful for their lives and also grateful for what their deaths have taught me and what their deaths have opened up in me and enabled me to do. They've enabled me to feel the feelings that I'm feeling and feel love and feel a connection to people I don't know and have a bond with them and understand some of what they are experiencing. And there's tremendous beauty in that. Anderson Cooper of CNN, his new podcast is great. And it is called All There Is. Thank you. Thank you. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, superstar soccer player Lionel Messi's legacy in Argentina. In the forecast overnight tonight, clear skies, some strong winds now and then, lows about 29 degrees. Tomorrow should make it to about 39 with sunny skies. Not too much to change for Wednesday, right about 40 degrees for a high. Again, 37 degrees in Boston at 430. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And the Cabot in Beverly. You can get funky New Year's Eve with Tower of Power, Saturday, December 31st, first at eight, bringing funk and soul music for 50 years. More at thecabot.org. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The House Committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol today voted to refer former President Donald Trump to the Justice Department for possible prosecution on four charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, two counts of conspiracy, and inciting an insurrection. The DOJ, though, doesn't have to act on the four criminal referrals. NPR's Carrie Johnson has more. Jack Smith, the special prosecutor here, is going to take a look at the referrals, but most Mostly what these uh, Justice Department lawyers want to see is the evidence, the transcripts of the interviews with a thousand or so witnesses, any additional documents the committee has got its hands on, uh, videos and, and audio, other evidence of that sort to help prosecutors build cases. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Meanwhile, the committee also referred four members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee for failing to comply with subpoenas. 
Drones sent by Russia entered Ukrainian airspace overnight. While Ukrainian officials say they shot down most of the drones, a few struck infrastructure around the capital city of Kyiv. And Pierce Tim Mack has more. Ukrainian officials say they've managed to destroy 30 out of 35 drones that entered the country's airspace. More than 20 of those drones were found to have been in the Kyiv region. In the capital city, critical infrastructure and private homes were hit due to these attacks. The strikes come as a top official for Ukraine's electrical grid operator warned that cold weather could lead to significant electrical shortages this week, directing people to charge their power banks and devices. Tim Mack, NPR News, Odessa. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 162 points at 32,757. That's down about a half percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court has ruled that it is not legal for doctors to prescribe medication to help terminally ill patients end their lives. The Supreme Judicial Court ruling says there's nothing in the state constitution to protect the prescribing. It also says doctors can be prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter if they help patients with a request to help end their lives. The case was first brought to by a Massachusetts doctor with cancer who wanted the option to end his life if his disease worsened. The high court says state lawmakers could take action to rewrite the law in this area. So-called medical aid in dying legislation has stalled in the state house for several years, a ballot measure that that would legalize the practice in Massachusetts was narrowly defeated in 2012. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says negotiations are continuing between the city and the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association on a new police contract. This despite statements from the union, the talks have stalled and are at an impasse. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. Mayor Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston there are some things she and the city will not compromise on. Our firm position is that we will not sign a contract that does not include reform. She says that reform includes reining in officer overtime and creating policies around discipline and accountability, as well as health and wellness. When asked if conversations would lead to arbitration, Mayor Wu said she didn't know, but she remained hopeful for an agreement. I continue to believe and see that there is really important common ground here. The Boston Police Patrolmen's Association has been without a contract since 2020. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Governor-elect Maura Healey will create a new cabinet-level position to oversee climate issues in Massachusetts. She'll appoint current Environmental Protection Agency Deputy General Counsel Melissa Hoffer to the post. As climate chief, Hoffer will be responsible for driving climate policy across every state agency and to make sure that climate change is considered in all relevant decision-making. Prior to her work at the EPA, Hoffer was chief of the Attorney General's uh, uh, Energy and Environment Bureau. 37 degrees now. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, understanding that now more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team. It's been such a nice day today. Should be windy tonight, chilly, clear again, down around 28 degrees. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Sunny skies, gusty winds, highs about 39 degrees. Not much of a change on Wednesday, right about 40 for a high. Could have some rain and gray skies by the end of the week. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. 
connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has delivered its final report to Congress and voted to issue criminal referrals against former President Trump. Four recommended charges of obstruction or conspiracy or participating in an insurrection, which adds to the pile of legal and political troubles facing Trump, who has already announced his bid to become president again. Again, let's welcome back Republican strategist Ron Bonjean. Hey there. Hey, it's great to be here. Great to have you with us. So come on a walk with me through what impact you can see this having. And I want to start with Donald Trump himself. Personally, politically, how damaging is this? Well, there's no doubt that the January 6th committee was going to throw the kitchen sink in uh, with their final report now that Republicans are going to be taking over the House. Politically, this is just another... Uh, piece of information that's damaging to the president when it comes to swing voters. Most Republicans, you know, who are really not paying attention to this, think that this is probably just another political exercise in Washington. But what it really matters is what those independent voters are thinking. And it's not helpful to the president uh, for 2024. So not unexpected. You're not surprised by where this has landed today. Does it impact Donald Trump's status as frontrunner for the 2024 nomination, do you think? Because you're, you're talking about the importance, perhaps, to swing voters. At this point, it probably does not impact his status because he's the only one in the field running at this point. You have Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, and former Vice President Mike Pence in the wings but they have not stepped forward. It's going to take a Republican, another Republican, to really step in and give Republican voters, base voters, a chance um, to make a choice. But right now, he's the only one that Republicans have. Speak to those men in the wings who you just mentioned, uh, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, if you were advising them. Perhaps you are advising them. <laughs> you no, can no. tell me. Um, what advice would you have for them today? Well, I would be thinking about when you're going to throw your hat into the ring, and that's probably going to be sometime early next year if they were to do it. Uh, right now, a lot of voters are paying attention to buying Christmas presents or holiday gifts and uh, getting ready for the holidays, and they heard something about President Trump that's controversial that leaves a negative impression. But if I were them, I'd be waiting until the next year so they can unveil a positive agenda to look forward to helping solve them uh, people's problems. What about the impact on your party, on the GOP more broadly? Um, I hear you saying, look, this isn't unexpected. They were going to throw the kitchen sink at him while they had the chance. However, to have the former president of the United States and the words seditious conspiracy in the same sentence, it's not a great look. No, it's not helpful to the Republican Party to have a report like this in general. Um, I think uh, unfortunately, that um, many people are getting used to this type of uh, these type of uh, phrases, and um, there's some, you know, I think that that it's not helpful to have out there for Republicans, and we need to move beyond that, and we need to have a nominee that looks to the future and that has a positive outlook instead of a legal albatross around his neck, along with 
so many other things that have gone wrong for wrong for former President Trump. We need somebody new, somebody fresh that can lead America forward and Are help the Republican Party dig its way out of this bad reputation that it's getting by associating with the president. Are those conversations taking place on Capitol Hill as you and I speak tonight? They're taking place all over the Republican Party right now, but it really takes another nominee to step forward before anyone's going to start really affiliating themselves and separating. You have, you know, let you have, uh, you have some members of Congress going on the record talking about how bad um, some of these uh, things that he's said and done over the past, you know, r- recently yeah. he has done. But we we need to have a, a lot more volume um, there. Ron Bonjean, he has advised Republicans in the House and the Senate. Thank you for coming back on the program. Good to speak with you. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to stick with the final January 6th committee hearing that wrapped up earlier today. We've spent some time discussing the legal aspects of the criminal referrals that the committee recommended, but there are also political implications. We're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, to help us understand the politics of all of this. Hi there. Hello, Juana. So, Domenico, did the committee provide any reasoning for why they're referring former President Trump and others on multiple criminal charges to the Justice Department? Yes. I mean, the committee said that it has significant evidence of wrongdoing by Trump and several of his associates. Here was committee chairman Benny Thompson explaining why the committee believes these referrals are necessary. Beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. He said essentially they're providing a roadmap to justice for the Justice Department. Trump, as we know, though, has been uh, facing multiple legal challenges. No federal charges have been brought against him to this point. But the Justice Department has a special counselor looking into Trump's conduct. It's remarkable because even in this environment, Trump is running again. His gamble is that the charges won't stick or that he could use them to be something of a martyr or further conspiracies about those investigating him, as we've seen him do. But we really need to underscore here that this is a former president. Uh, It's a really big deal. It's never been done before, and it'll be remembered by history, and this is going to be a major piece of Donald Trump's legacy. This was the committee's final hearing, and at this point, we have heard hours of testimony. Did we learn anything new today about former President Trump's mindset on January 6th? Well, the committee's provided lots of evidence that Trump's team knew that allegations of widespread fraud were baseless. We heard, for example, for the first time today from Hope Hicks, who was a top communications advisor to the president, very close to the former president. She said that she had warned Trump that his legacy would be tarnished if he continued to talk about these allegations. And one thing she said mattered above all else with Trump. She said something along the lines of... um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is is winning. Yeah, I mean, for those of us who've covered Trump closely over the years, we've known that Trump needed an exit ramp from an election that he lost because he couldn't go down as a loser. He needed a scapegoat. He needed it to not be his fault. And now we know that he admitted exactly that to someone close to him. 
So given that Trump has already announced he is running again in 2024 and that the country remains deeply divided over January 6th and the 2020 election, in the short time we've got left, what kind of impact do you think this report and these hearings could have? Well, not to be a broken record about this, but there has been plenty of evidence of wrongdoing over the years, not just related to January 6th, but impeachments, allegations of sexual misconduct, and more than that. But instead of seeing it matter tremendously with Trump's base, instead what we've seen is people just entrenched in their own partisanship. We've seen it in polling, and particularly among people who have not paid very close attention, which are Republicans. That is NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered. Now that the World Cup trophy is in Argentine hands, it and the team who won it are making the 21-hour journey from Doha to Buenos Aires. They're headed home to celebrate with fans. On Sunday afternoon, Argentina and its superstar player, Lionel Messi, claimed the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Prior to the tournament, Messi had already announced this would be his last World Cup. NPR's Jasmine Garst is host of the podcast, The Last Cup, a series that is part part messy biopic, part memoir. Hey there, Jasmine. Hi. Hi. So yesterday, such a great game, like edge of your seat to the very last second. Um, Great soccer, but speak to why it's such a historic deal, such a big deal. Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, despite being a country where soccer is the religion, pretty much, uh, Argentina hasn't won the World Cup in a really long time. Uh, Also, I might add, Latin America hasn't won a cup in 20 years. As you mentioned, it's Lionel Messi's last World Cup, or so he said. He's one of the best soccer players to have ever lived, but he's never won that title up until now. Um, but not having won that title led to a, like a really strained relationship with Argentina for a long time. Yeah, just stay with that point for a second, because a lot of people might not know that until pretty recently, Messi was was not so popular in his home country. Yeah, he was constantly compared to Diego Maradona, who was like the original Argentine soccer god. Uh, Maradona won a World Cup in 1986. And honestly, up until recently, Messi did not perform so well with Argentina. He was seen, geez, almost as like a hack, like a guy (laughs) who played well as long as he was with a European club, but never with us. Is it safe to say that yesterday may have moved him beyond the hack category for most people in Argentina? Oh, I think it changed before yesterday. I mean, it took years, but people started to really see Messi for the athlete he is and just how much he wanted to win for his home country. Um, You know, Argentina also got an excellent coach who surrounded Messi with a team that actually played like a team and didn't just expect Messi to do everything. So, yes, Messi is absolutely now in the pantheon of Argentine soccer gods. Step back, Jasmine, and speak to the impact more broadly of this World Cup, of the game yesterday. It felt to me anecdotally like a lot of people here in the States were watching and were glued to it, which is maybe not something you would have seen 20 years ago for the World Cup. Um, Do you see the growth of soccer in the U.S. continuing, the growth, you know, driven in part by, by immigrant population? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think that soccer 
soccer is is no longer just an immigrant sport. I think soccer has gone way beyond that. I mean, every World Cup I have gone to this time around here in New York, I had to like elbow my way past American fans who like maybe didn't speak Spanish or weren't immigrants. I just had to make my way through. I think we can safely say football has arrived has. and it probably arrived a long time ago. Yeah. Real quick in a sentence or two, what's Lionel Messi? Where's he going next? There's rumors of Inter Miami, the soccer club, and he said he'd love to pay, play for Argentina again. So who knows? Maybe it isn't his last cup after all. <laughs> all right. Maybe round two of another podcast series for you and Pierre's <laughs> Jasmine Guards. Thank you so much for your reporting for your great podcast, The Last Cup. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, efforts to preserve the only recreational space in Chinatown in Boston have hit a snag. That story still to come. Tonight at 7 o'clock on WBUR, before Achute Deng was even a teenager, she'd escaped civil war in South Sudan and a Kenyan refugee camp. Now she's a suburban mom in South Dakota, and she's telling her story that she's never told before. That's tonight at 7 o'clock on On Point at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Boston Bruins homestand continues tonight. They host the Florida Panthers at the Garden. 7 o'clock game time. Salts are off until Wednesday. Should be windy tonight. Chilly down around 28 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunny skies, gusty winds dry once again. Right about 39 degrees. 37 now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments. Reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Before she was a teenager, Achut Deng escaped civil war in South Sudan and life in a Kenyan refugee camp. I remember what my grandmother told me. Don't look back. It will slow you down. Until recently, she carried that secret history with her. I chose to give my three boys something that I have never had. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The High Court in London has ruled that a British government policy to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda was lawful. But as Villa Marx reports, the decision is not likely to have any impact on the dangerous migrant boat crossings from France that left four people dead this past week. The new deportation policy was announced in April after tens of thousands of people had already made the hazardous voyage to the coastline of southern England. The UK agreed to pay authorities in the African nation of Rwanda to process the claims of asylum seekers who'd arrived in Britain through such routes, which the British government deemed illegal. The country's then interior minister argued the plan would not only ease the burden on Britain's clogged asylum system, but also deter future migrants from attempting similar voyages. 
The first chartered airplane scheduled to take asylum seekers to Rwanda left entirely empty this summer, after each of the designated passengers won legal challenges against their deportations. And since then, the boats from France have kept on coming, alongside criticism from political opponents, human rights activists and even the UN's own refugee agency, UNHCR. Lawyers for eight would-be deportees petitioned the High Court in London to annul their clients' deportation orders and to deem the overall policy unlawful. Today, however, the justices found the policy was in keeping with Britain's legal obligations to asylum seekers. Lawyer Sophie Lucas works on behalf of several claimants involved in the decision. Of course, it's disappointing that on a generic level, the court found it's lawful for the government to have made these arrangements for asylum seekers to be removed to Rwanda to have their claims processed. But the judges did criticise the government, calling the process around some individual cases, quote, flawed. And this meant Britain's Interior Minister, or Secretary of State for the Home Department, will now need to carefully consider each individual circumstances before considering deportation. The Secretary of State does need to take these cases seriously and make good, proper decisions um, before she can even attempt to remove anyone to Rwanda, which we maintain would be unlawful in any event. Secretary of State Suella Braverman reacted to the ruling with a statement that she was, quote, committed to moving ahead with the policy as soon as possible. But further court appeals are likely, and until the legal process is entirely exhausted, a European court's injunction on further deportation flights will remain in place. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Community groups are inching closer to securing a long-awaited agreement with the state to formally lease Reggie Wong Park. Reggie Wong Park is the only outdoor recreational space in Boston's Chinatown, but after years of negotiation, there's a holdup. There are environmental hazards left over from the big dig and disagreement on who should fix them. WBR's Amy Moon reports this is standing in the way of protecting what has been a core part of the community for decades. This piece of land is ours. This is our park. In a video from October shared online, Norman Ang is speaking out into a crowd of community members at Reggie Wong Park, demanding a lease from the state. The small recreational park near South Station is owned by the Department of Transportation and is the center of an ongoing battle for open space in Chinatown. From this day forward, we want to make sure that we have control. Thank you. Reggie Wong Park is a third of an acre next to an old steam plant in I-93. It has a few basketball hoops and a court for playing volleyball. In an interview, Norman says you can smell the highway exhaust from the courts, but he considers the park his second home. Well, because it's all that we have left. (laughs) It's our one sacred space. He's played volleyball in Chinatown since he was 14 years old. It's just kind of disappointing to see the park still not secured for long term. Norman says it's just part of the long struggle over land in Chinatown. In the 1950s and 60s, the state displaced thousands of residents from their homes to make way for major infrastructure projects like the Central Artery. The park and surrounding area are one of the last remaining sites to be cleaned up after the big dig, and in 2016, the area was put up for development. That's when the community started organizing to formally lease the park from the DOT. Russell Eng, who has no relation to Norman, is a president of the nonprofit Friends of Reggie Wong Park. We just want to lease the land, make it better, and make it playable for the neighborhoods. He says in 2019, the community was close to signing an agreement with the DOT that would lease the land for $1 a year. 
Then, with the COVID pandemic and leadership changes, Russell says they didn't hear from the DOT for three years. That was until last April, when the state notified them that there was asbestos in the soil and that the terms of the lease would change. They said, well, we'll give you the lease, but if you do anything to improve the park, then you're responsible for remediating the hazardous waste. And we're like, how, how can that be? Representatives from the DOT declined to be interviewed, but said in an email that it's working with the state's Department of Environmental Protection to remediate the asbestos. But Russell says the two parties have not yet been able to agree on how much cleanup the DOT will be responsible for. Friends of Rejuwang Park has secured at least $250,000 in federal funds to improve the park. But their hands are tied, says nonprofit board member Catherine Friedman. We can't make any park improvements until we have a lease, and we can't have a lease until there's been some remediation. So we have this space here that is not necessarily safe. It's not unusual for these types of negotiations to take years, according to Ezra Glenn, who teaches urban studies and planning at MIT. He says it's complicated when there are both city and state agencies involved. This is a weird thing where you know, the state owns land in the city, and DOT was not created to provide parks for the city of Boston. Glenn is not involved in the negotiations, but says if the state keeps it as a park for the community, it foregoes the potential income for other public projects. But just because something is prime real estate does not mean that it should be given over to developers. That's City Council President Ed Flint, who represents Chinatown and has been supporting the community's effort to secure open space. What we don't want to see is after the lease is up, the park be developed into luxury condos for the wealthy. This community deserves better. One way to keep the park would be to have it legally designated a public park. It would then be protected by the state's constitution. But Russell says the current lease terms specifically state that the DOT will not permanently recognize Reggie Wong Park as protected land. That's the thing about being in Chinatown, right? You don't get to negotiate with the, with the government. They negotiate for you. Like when they actually split Chinatown in half, right? To put the surface artery there. Representatives from Boston's Planning and Development Agency, Parks, and Environment Departments all declined to interview on the subject. Chief of Environment Mariama White-Hammond said in an email that the city, quote, appreciates the community's advocacy for more park space. Russell says other than Councillor Flynn, representatives from the city stopped attending meetings over a year ago. The nonprofit is meeting with the DOT tomorrow to discuss soil remediation. Even if the negotiations fall through, Russell says the community will continue to use the park as it has for 50 years. We'd rather play and continue our community presence and community traditions there, and we'll deal with the health factors and stuff like that afterwards. Come January, Russell says he'll work with the new administration to secure the park for Chinatown's future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Should be kind of windy overnight tonight. Clear skies, temperatures right about 29 degrees. Then for tomorrow should be about 39 with sunshine once again. Not much of a change for Wednesday. Sunny and dry, about 40 degrees for a high. This is 90.9 WBUR in the Boston area. 37 degrees now. The time is 4.59. WBUR supporters include Life of Pi at the ART. Get swept away by the award-winning story of endurance and hope now through January 29th. amrep.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The January 6th committee has recommended criminal charges be filed against former President Donald Trump. President Trump and his enablers repeatedly pressured state officials to take action to overturn the results of the election. Committee member Adam Schiff on the historic decision coming up. It's Monday, December 19th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Vice President Kamala Harris says Congress has a major problem it has to fix. The issue of immigration, as outlined in the way we have structured our government, is an issue for Congress to address. More from Harris on immigration, also on abortion and her role as the tie-breaking vote in the U.S. Senate. And scientists say anxiety is useful and adaptive. But then there's the other side. What is anxiety and how much is too much coming up? It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House Special Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is urging the Justice Department to bring criminal charges against former President Donald Trump. That's based on the findings of the committee's year-and-a-half-long investigation. NPR Susan Davis has more. The panel's seven Democrats and two Republicans unanimously voted in its last public hearing to approve four criminal referrals against Trump for conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to make a false statement, and aiding an insurrection. The referrals have no force of law, and the Justice Department is already investigating the former president on multiple fronts. The widely anticipated referrals are one of the final acts of the committee, which dissolves at the end of this session of Congress. The panel is expected to release a lengthy report of its full findings on Wednesday. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. The Secretary General of the United Nations says he is not optimistic about the possibility of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, but he's hoping the conflict can be resolved sometime in 2023. NPR's Michelle Kelman reports the comments come amid speculation Russia may be preparing a new major offensive. Secretary General Antonio Guterres sounds resigned to the notion that the military confrontation will continue. I think we will have still to wait uh, a moment in which uh, serious negotiations for peace, it will be possible. I don't see them in the immediate horizon.
So he says he's working on specific areas where the U.N. is making progress. That includes prisoner exchanges and a deal to get grain and fertilizer out of Ukraine and Russia. Guterres is also raising alarms about Russia's bombardment of Ukraine's energy infrastructure, which he says will have terrible consequences for Ukrainian civilians. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. World leaders have reached a landmark agreement aimed at protecting 30 percent of the land and water as a refuge for wild plants and animals by 2030. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports it's a major step toward avoiding mass extinction around the globe. The agreement came at the end of a two-week meeting by nearly 200 nations. Wealthy countries, including the United States, now say they will contribute an estimated $30 billion per year by the end of the decade to protect plants and animals in less wealthy nations. The agreement also pushes companies to be more transparent about how their activities affect the natural world. Climate change, population growth, and unsustainable extraction of resources from the earth has caused widespread destruction of ecosystems that threatens access to clean air and clean water for billions of people. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Stocks continued their downward slide. The Dow dropped 162 points. The Nasdaq fell 159 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic congressional delegation are weighing in on today's report by the January 6th committee. The committee is urging the Justice Department to bring four criminal charges against former President Donald Trump as part of his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. U.S. Senator Ed Markey says Trump belongs in the jailhouse, not the White House. Congresswoman Lori Trahan calls the January 6th insurrection one of the darkest days in our nation's history. She says people die because Donald Trump refused to accept defeat. Massachusetts' longest-serving Health and Human Services Secretary is retiring. Mary Lou Sutters made the announcement today. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. In a note to staff, Sutter said her goal was not to become the longest-serving secretary, but to help the Massachusetts residents who need government assistance. She said her eight years as secretary have been a privilege and an extraordinarily humbling experience. Sutter says she considers one of her main accomplishments to be improving behavioral health care. She says there is now more willingness to address some of the complicated issues surrounding mental health care than when she first took over. We embrace the complexity now and lean in. And I think that that gives a lot of people hope. Sutter's retirement becomes effective January 5th when Governor Healy takes office. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The mayor of Boston says she looks forward to signing an ordinance establishing a task force to study how the city can provide reparations to black Bostonians. That ordinance was passed by the city council last week. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston Today, Mayor Michelle Wu says it's time the city took a long look at its historic role in slavery. The many ways in which we were involved in the practice of enslavement, uh, benefited from, and what the current impacts continue to be resulting from that. In a statement released today, Wu says the practice of enslavement has denied black Americans pathways to build generational wealth and secure stable housing. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has signed on to a letter that calls on the Biden administration to end the COVID-19 national public health emergency. The letter spearheaded by New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu says while the virus is still with us, we have the tools and information to protect communities from COVID. The letter says the emergency declaration has led to an unnecessary increase in Medicaid expenses that will continue if the administration extends it further. 
In the forecast should fall to the high 20s overnight tonight. Some stiff winds around tonight. Tomorrow still windy, sunny and dry again, right about 40 again. Ditto for Wednesday. Sunny skies, right about 40. 37 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The final hearing of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol wrapped up this afternoon, officially making Donald Trump the first former president to ever be subject to criminal referrals from Congress. The four referrals the panel made against him are obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and incite, assist, or aid and comfort an insurrection. Committee leaders alluded to evidence and testimony from dozens of witnesses gathered over the last year about the former president's role in the attack. The Capitol was invaded, the electoral count was halted, and the lives of those in the Capitol were put at risk. In addition to being unlawful as described in our report, this was an utter moral failure. We have every confidence that the work of this committee will help provide a roadmap to justice. Let's hear more about where that roadmap may lead with Paul Butler, Georgetown University law professor and former federal prosecutor. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. So you used to respond to criminal referrals when you worked at the DOJ, and you have watched, along with all of us, the panel's investigation unfold. Is there anything that you've seen or heard that feels like a slam dunk for the Justice Department to pursue prosecution on the charges laid out? There are no slam dunks when it comes to the what would be the first prosecution of a former president in history. And the House referral carries no legal weight. The Justice Department is an independent agency that takes its marching orders not from Congress, but from the Attorney General, and in this case, Special Counsel Jack Smith. Still, federal prosecutors will scour the evidence that the House has gathered, including the hundreds of thousands of documents, text messages, and emails, and the statements of more than 1,000 witnesses. So just walking us through this here, what could perhaps stop the Justice Department from pursuing prosecution? You know, it's very difficult to prove criminal intent. You have to prove what's going on in someone's mind. If Donald Trump, in good faith, honestly believed that he won the election, that's a defense to many of the crimes that are he's being considered, that GLJ is considering prosecuting him for. The government would have to prove that Trump knew that he lost and he just didn't care. Earlier, you mentioned special counsel Jack Smith, who the Justice Department already has investigating the January 6th insurrection. So how does the House committee's work come into play for Smith and his team? So the evidence will inform DLJ's and special counsel Smith's decision about whether to bring criminal charges with the caution that it's much easier to present a case in a one-sided hearing like today rather than in a criminal trial where some of the evidence that the House considered might not even be admitted and where 12 jurors would have to be persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt. We've got about a minute left together. The roadmap that committee chairman Benny Thompson mentioned, it's vast, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and testimony from 
more than a thousand interviews. How long might it be before we have a sense of what the Department of Justice is going to do here? The Justice Department isn't supposed to think about politics, but it's allowed to notice that there's a presidential election coming up in two years. Chairman Thompson said today he hoped the report would be a roadmap to justice and a prosecution of a former president would be historic and unprecedented. But it's also a must-win case for the Justice Department because there's no guarantee it would actually win. And really quickly, DOJ officials also understand that declining to prosecute would be symbolic as well. It would express to some people that Trump is innocent, and under the law, that would be exactly right if there's no prosecution. But some other people mm. would say that Trump had enough money and power to get away with criminal conduct, and that DOJ would have failed to hold the president accountable. So the stakes are really high, and whatever right. DOJ does is going to be very controversial. Former federal prosecutor and Georgetown law professor Paul Butler, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. The vice president, Kamala Harris, sat down today with NPR's Asma Khalid. They talked about her portfolio, including Title 42. That's the pandemic border restriction that barred many migrants from seeking asylum in the U.S. and which may come to an end soon. It was set to end on Wednesday. There's been a temporary stay of that. That's because of a request from Republican governors who are worried about a big surge of people coming to the border. Well, Asma Khalid is here sitting down with us now. Hey there. Welcome. Hey there. Good to be with you. So the vice president has been active um, in trying to address root causes of migration. How worried is she about the possible end of this rule of Title 42? Well, I should be clear, I spoke to the vice president earlier today before the Supreme Court temporarily blocked the end of Title 42. Mm -hmm. She acknowledged the challenges that the end of the rule poses, but through the bulk of the responsibility for fixing these immigration problems to Congress. Uh, Here's a bit of our exchange. I'm curious if there's anything you feel that that you all can do unilaterally. And I I guess I say this in part because the governor of your home state of California, he told ABC News this week that, you know, what we've got right now isn't working. And I'm quoting him here. He said that it's about to break in a post-42 world unless we take responsibility and ownership. And it sounds like the situation in certain states, I guess in California in particular, is incredibly dire with the fear that things will become unsustainable in the weeks ahead. Well, listen, I think that it is right to say that we need leadership on this issue, in in particular from Congress. Now, the president and I and our administration, we are going to do everything that's within our ability as the executive branch. And that means, again, putting more agents um, on the border as appropriate so that we can manage um, what might be an influx. It is about increasing the work that we have been increasing around arresting human smugglers. And it is the work that we have been doing that has been about bringing the partners and the allies together on an international level, understanding that we are seeing these migration trends around the globe. And in particular, the work that we have done that has been about addressing the root causes of migration from for example, the northern part of Central America, actually is having an impact. And Mayor Louise, this issue has been a part of her assignment as vice president. She has come under political criticism for the situation at the border. But, you know, lately the big increase has actually been from countries outside of Central America, for example, like Cuba and Venezuela. Changing subjects. Um, you also asked her about Twitter, about mm-hmm. all the drama right now. Is she is she still on there? Is she still tweeting? She is. Uh, she and her staff use Twitter frequently. But I asked her, is there a point where she would decide she's not going to use the site anymore? Yeah. Uh, she did not really answer that question, but she told me she is concerned about the spread of disinformation. So what I would say about any social media site is this. 
I would, I fully expect and would require that leaders in that sector cooperate and work with us who are concerned about national security, concerned about upholding and protecting our democracy to do everything in their power to ensure that there is not a, 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 a manipulation um, that is allowed um, or overlooked that is, is done with the intention of upending the security of our democracy and our nation. Asma, I know you only had so much time with the vice president, but were you able to, to get her engaged big picture? Like, how does she see these next two years? She's got two years left mm-hmm. in this job. You what, know, one of the big, big changes is that, you know, she told me she has essentially been on call these last two years for the Senate mm-hmm. uh, because the Senate was split evenly. She had to cast the tie-breaking vote. With a new Congress in January, Democrats might have a little more wiggle room, and so she may be less tethered to Washington. And PR's Asma Holland, and you can hear more of that interview with the vice president tomorrow. For a lot of families, going out into the woods to harvest a Christmas tree is a beloved holiday tradition. In the mountains of Colorado, the Rodas family carried on that to a new generation this year. Aspen Public Radio's Eleanor Bennett went along. It's a snowy, gray morning, but the energy is high at the trailhead in the White River National Forest near Glenwood Springs. Bad Bunny plays on a loudspeaker. People pass around tamales and Mexican hot chocolate called champurado. And Smokey Bear greets families as they arrive. At a table under a tent, a ranger gives a handsaw to the Rodas family, Vicky, Nelson, and Jair, who's 10, almost 11 years old. The ranger points them to a nearby trail. Let's go. Vicky and Nelson are from Aguas Calientes, Mexico, and have lived here since 2005. I grew up in a big family. We never had the option to buy a fake Christmas tree. So my mom, every year, she'd come and say, like, this afternoon we're going to go to pick up our Christmas tree. Her mom passed away from cancer about nine years ago, but she says she wants to keep her legacy alive for her youngest son, Jair. Right, Jair? Your grandma? Yeah. And wait, so this is your first time ever doing this? Yes. What do you think about it? It's fun. Are you excited to pick out the tree? Yes. After passing several not quite perfect candidates. Yeah, you. It's not too big. Let's go check it out. Wait for me. <laughs> the snow is up to our knees, and by the time we reach the tree, Jair is already pulling out the saw. Is that a start from the inside? Oh, okay. Jair and his dad get to work sawing. Vicky tells me she's happy to be taking Jair to cut his first Christmas tree and to keep her mom's memory alive today. The way that she likes to, you know, keep us, like, happy and enjoy the things that we have. We don't have that much, but we're we always, like, grateful to be, like, you know, big family and have those women with her. After about 10 minutes, we hear a snapping sound, and Jair looks up with a smile. Got it? Look at that. For his part, Jair says he's already planning to come back next year. Maybe next time I might be 12. Because this year I'm 11, next year I'm 12. For NPR News, I'm Eleanor Bennett in Aspen, Colorado.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Republican George Santos won a House seat in Long Island last month, but now much of his biography and his resume appear to have been invented. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bouldering Project in Union Square, offering a Learn to Climb program with instruction, rental shoes, and a one-month membership. Details at bostonbouldering.project.com. Stocks closed lower for fourth day today. The Dow lost about a half percent, 163 points, to end the day at 32,758. S&P was down nine-tenths of a percent to finish at 38.19. The Nasdaq fell nearly one and a half percent to end the day at 10,546. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is raising a conflict of interest question about Elon Musk's simultaneous leadership of both Twitter and Tesla. Warren has written a letter to Tesla's board. She suggests investors in the electric car maker are being harmed by Musk's running of the social network. Warren claims Musk has diverted resources from Tesla to Twitter, including software engineers and senior executives. She also suggests a rise on hate speech on Twitter could hurt Tesla's reputation. So far, there's been no comment from the car maker. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at wbur.org. Boston Bruins have won three of their last four games and hope to continue the trend tonight as they welcome the Florida Panthers at the Garden. The puck drops at 7 o'clock. Clear weather from today should continue tonight. Some strong winds around overnight, lows about 29. Tomorrow should make it to about 39 tops. Sunny skies once again. Not much of a change for Wednesday, right about 40 for a high. Any rain should hold off until the end of the week. This is WBUR. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd. This film is rated R. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. To help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Americans are anxious. Nearly three years of a pandemic, political unrest, and ongoing economic instability have left people feeling fearful, ill at ease. This week, we're spending some time understanding anxiety. We'll kick off the series with a simple question. What is anxiety? NPR's health correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee, went looking for the answer and brings us this story. Most of us have experienced anxiety at some point in our lives, and we know how it shows up in our bodies. Racing thoughts, struggling to sit still, queasy stomach, sensations that bring a sense of dread. Psychologist Bumi Olatunji studies anxiety at Vanderbilt University. Anxiety is a feeling of nervousness and apprehension. And usually that feeling is in response to an anticipated threat. Take, for example, the pandemic which brought the threat of disease. 
And while we may not enjoy feeling anxious, Olutunji says it's a normal and extremely useful emotion. If you're anxious about something, that's motivation to either problem solve or to do something about it. In other words, anxiety can be adaptive. That's why researchers think that it probably played a key role in human evolution, because it alerted our ancestors to threats in their environment. Ed Hagen studies the evolution of emotions and mental illnesses at Washington State University. And if you look at the kinds of things that people tend to be anxious about, they do seem to line up with those kinds of long-standing evolutionary threats. Like predators, poisonous foods and animals, disease, and even social threats. Most of us are, you know, really concerned that we maintain a good reputation with our friends and group members. Because being in a group meant physical safety and a higher chance of survival. These days, though, most people aren't fending off predators or foraging for food. But our anxiety is still warning us about modern-day threats. Wendy Mendez is at the University of California, San Francisco, and studies how emotions play out in our bodies. She says anxiety tends to rev up one part of our nervous system. In anxiety, you often will have an activation of sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic arm of the nervous system kickstarts our fight or flight response. It's part of that vigilance. I'm monitoring the environment um, for threats. Our muscles tighten, our heart rates go up as we prepare to fight the threat or run from it. But this activation also suppresses another key part of the nervous system, the parasympathetic nerves. Because your parasympathetic system tells you, I'm hungry, I'm going to digest food. It affects your sleep. can't go to sleep when your parasympathetic system is suppressed. All that's helpful in the short term because it focuses all the body's resources on dealing with the threat. But then there are also situations that can put people in a heightened state of anxiety for longer periods of time. For example, a major traumatic event or chronic stresses like community violence or ongoing medical or financial problems. Mendez says when this short-term warning system, that's anxiety, starts to linger on, that's when it starts to become harmful. Think of it as, you know, constant pressure on a system. It's like if you only could breathe in and you could never breathe out. Research shows that chronic anxiety puts people at a higher risk of a range of physical health problems. Insomnia, spikes in blood sugar levels, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. And prolonged heightened anxiety could also become an anxiety disorder. Psychologist Alyssa Apple is at the University of California, San Francisco. Anxiety disorders develop when we start avoiding situations in life. This avoidance is what creates the disorder. It disrupts our life. Apple says there are good treatments for anxiety disorders. However, most people dealing with everyday anxiety probably don't meet the criteria for that. But their anxiety can still be high and erode away their health and quality of life. In this modern environment, when our mind is overtaxed with stimulation, our sensory system is overloaded, we don't tend to notice that we're carrying around anxiety. That's why Apple says it's important to pay attention to our anxiety and the little everyday threats it's telling us about so we can address them in the moment and keep our anxiety in check so it doesn't take over our lives. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. And later this week, Ritu will bring us tips and tools to manage anxiety. (music) 
A freshman Republican congressman elected last month in New York appears to have faked much of his life story. George Santos won a House race on Long Island. He made claims about his education and business career that sources tell NPR are not true. A top Republican leader in New York now says the accusations against Santos are, quote, serious, as NPR's Brian Mann reports. During the campaign, George Santos described his career and his life story as a shining example of the American dream. Here he is speaking on CBS Channel 2 before the election. I'm a private sector guy. I was born and raised in, in abject poverty in this country, and only in this country that somebody who comes from a basement apartment in Jackson Heights like I did is able to rise to become a successful business person to then run for United States Congress. I want but it turns out much of Santos' backstory appears untrue. Santos claimed in his official campaign bio he graduated from Baruch College with a bachelor's degree in economics and finance. In a statement sent to NPR, the school says it searched its records for Santos and, quote, could not find a match. The New York Times, which broke this story, also found Santos appears to have fabricated his history working for prestigious Wall Street firms. In a statement to NPR, a Citigroup spokesperson said they were, quote, unable to confirm Mr. Santos' employment with Citi. The Goldman Sachs spokesperson also told NPR he could find no record of Santos ever being employed by their company. NPR tried repeatedly to contact Santos without success. A top New York State Republican, Joseph Cairo Jr., however, issued a statement Monday calling the accusations against Santos serious. Cairo, who chairs the influential Nassau County Republican Committee on Long Island, said Santos, quote, deserves an opportunity to address the claims. Every person deserves an opportunity to clear his or her name in the face of accusations, Cairo added. Santos, who is gay, also claimed in an interview with WNYC Public Radio that four of his employees died when a gunman opened fire at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, in 2016. Which I happened to, at the time, have people that worked for me in the club. We, my company at the time, we lost four employees that were, that were at Pulse nightclub. Santos said he has tragic memories of that deadly mass shooting, but the New York Times investigation could find no link between any of the 49 victims and firms or companies tied to Santos. Again, NPR tried repeatedly to contact Santos without hearing back. Some Democrats are now calling for Santos to resign before taking office. That would likely trigger a special election in a competitive House district. This scandal could also complicate Congressman Kevin McCarthy's bid for the House speakership. McCarthy's been struggling to secure enough votes from GOP members to win the gavel. Santos committed yesterday on Twitter that he would vote for McCarthy, but Santos' own future in Washington is now in serious question. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should be clear and dry overnight tonight, falling to about 28 degrees and more dry weather ahead for the next few days. Tomorrow, sunny, a few fair weather clouds passing through, high temperatures about 40. 37 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In the 1940s, this was thought to be revolutionary. Good night, stars. Good night, air. 
Good night. Noises everywhere. The bedtime tradition from writer Margaret Wise Brown is 75 years old. We pause to appreciate the beloved children's book, Good Night Moon, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News. News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The House Committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol has voted to refer former President Donald Trump to the Department of Justice for possible prosecution on four criminal counts. Committee member Jamie Raskin has more. We believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. Raskin is referring there to Trump lawyer John Eastman. Other charges, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to make a false statement, and aiding an insurrection. This as Trump launched into a massive campaign to try to overturn his 2020 election loss. It's up to the Justice Department, though, to decide whether or not it wants to charge Trump. President Biden and the First Lady will host a Hanukkah reception at the White House tonight. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the eight-day Jewish Festival of Lights officially began at sundown yesterday. Attorney General Merrick Garland took part in the National Menorah Lighting Ceremony near the White House on Sunday. Garland remarked on the Justice Department's mission to uphold civil rights amid an increase of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. That mission is to uphold the rule of law to keep our country safe and to protect the civil rights of everyone in this country. President Biden will deliver remarks tonight following a blessing and a menorah lighting. Biden will also mark a new tradition, adding the first ever White House menorah to the official holiday collection. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 162 points. NASDAQ down 159. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts will soon have his first climate chief. Governor-elect Maura Healey announced today that she has tapped Melissa Hoffer to oversee climate policy across all state agencies. Hoffer currently serves in the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She previously worked in the state's attorney general's office. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, environmental groups are applauding the appointment. Conservation Law Foundation President Brad Campbell says Melissa Hoffer is a great choice for climate chief. Campbell worked with Hoffer when she was at the advocacy group and says she was always committed to involving community voices, especially marginalized community voices, into conversations about the environment. And I think that's going to be critically important to the design of climate policy and making sure that we have not just a transition to clean energy, but a transition that is just and takes into account the communities that have been hit first and worst. According to the Healy administration, Massachusetts is the first state in the country to have a cabinet-level climate chief. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Former Massachusetts Congressman Joseph Kennedy III is the Biden administration's pick to be the U.S. Special Envoy to Northern Ireland for Economic Affairs. The State Department says Kennedy will focus on advancing economic development in Northern Ireland. He spent eight years in the U.S. House in the seat currently held by Jake Auchincloss. 
Kennedy is taking over the role from Mick Mulvaney, who left the post in 2021. And a man in his 50s has died, and another man is injured after an ammonia leak in Norwood. Authorities say the incident happened at Home Market Foods, a frozen foods processing company. The Norfolk DA says the two men were working for an outside contractor around the area where the leak started. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Boston Bruins homestand continues tonight. They host the Florida Panthers at the Garden, 7 o'clock game time. Celtics are off until Wednesday. If you like today's weather, you're in luck because tomorrow and Wednesday should be pretty much the same. A good deal of sunshine, dry and brisk. Highs right around 39 or 40. The great weather should hold off until Thursday. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After more than a year, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol held its final meeting today and voted unanimously to refer former President Trump for criminal charges. We understand the gravity of each and every referral we are making today, just as we understand the magnitude of the crime against democracy that we describe in our report. But we have gone where the facts and the law lead us, and inescapably, they lead us here. That is Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland. Today, he and other members of the committee made their final case for why they believe Trump should be held accountable for January 6th. Here's Republican Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Every president in our history has defended this orderly transfer of authority, except one. January 6th, 2021 was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next. The committee is recommending that Trump be charged with four crimes, inciting or assisting an insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and conspiracy to make a false statement. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California and another member of that committee. Congressman, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Start with the fact that these are referrals from your committee, recommendations for the Department of Justice to do something but not binding. What is their value? I think the value is twofold. The value is we're setting out uh, to the department uh, just what crimes we believe were committed and the evidence that supports those crimes. And importantly, we are providing both to the department and to the public that voluminous evidence. I also think it's uh, an important feature of accountability. That is, we have informed the country that in the view of Congress, uh, the former president has committed multiple crimes. Uh, and that, I think, brings about a certain accountability. Uh, the attorney general promised at the in initiation of his own investigation that he would follow the evidence where it leads, that uh, there would be only one standard 
of the rule of law for mm-hmm. the powerful and for the less powerful or not powerful at all. Uh, and by making our analysis public, uh, it helps to hold the Justice Department to that standard. So understanding you have no control over what the Justice Department does next, it sounds like it's your personal hope that prosecutors there will find the evidence compelling enough to bring charges? I'm deeply concerned that if the department were to decide that notwithstanding the evidence, and I do think the evidence is sufficient to charge the former president, but let's say they decide that not notwithstanding that, that it's too controversial, uh, that it would be too disruptive uh, to charge a former president, uh, that his supporters would be upset. Well, then the president becomes above the law. uh, And that is an idea that the founders would have found uh, unacceptable and extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, so yes, I, I hope the department will apply the same rule of law to Donald Trump that it would to you or I or anyone listening. Uh, and I think if they do, it will result in charges against him. What about all the others? I mean, the big headline today is these four criminal referrals for Trump. But aside from him, why so few referrals for Trump allies? Because you interviewed a lot of folks, and I, I, I have to wonder if the limited scope perhaps speaks to the constraints your panel faced. Uh, you know, we did mention others that we believe also may have committed criminal offenses. A couple uh, of two lawyers. Yep. Yes, and, and we also made it clear that the Justice Department is in the possession of evidence that we are not in possession of, so they may have a basis to charge other individuals. We, we didn't, of course, set out the, you know, the hundreds of people who attacked the Capitol that day, but we wanted to put our emphasis on, frankly, the ringleader, uh, the one that was preeminently responsible for that attack. Uh, and, uh, and we also felt the evidence against the former president was uh, perhaps the strongest evidence uh, as to any of these potential uh, criminal defendants. We have been speaking about what the legal path forward might look like, the legal considerations in play. Let me turn you to the political considerations. Is anything that the committee recommended today aimed at making it more difficult for Donald Trump to run, to win in 2024? Uh, That's really not our goal or our responsibility. Uh, We certainly hope that people followed the hearings and and, uh, saw, as our vice chair said today, just how unfit for office Donald Trump is. This was Liz Cheney speaking today, saying he should never, ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. Yes. And, you know, watching the evidence, uh, seeing uh, evidence, for example, of the president on January 6th, who was told that thousands of people won't go through the metal detectors because they have weapons. Uh, and they don't want the weapons taken away. And his answer is, well, then take down the effing mags, take down the metal detectors. They're not here to hurt me. Uh, He wants this armed crowd to march on the Capitol. He wants to go with them in the march. He's indignant when he can't go. Uh, And when that mob descends on the Capitol and and beats and gouges police officers, uh, he watches it all on the TV from the White House dining room and does nothing, won't lift a finger, won't call anyone... Uh, to bring it to an end. And someone like that just is fundamentally unfit, someone who is that willing to be derelict in their responsibility. So yes, you know, it's important information for the public, but our primary responsibility is protecting the, the Constitution and our democracy and our recommendations, which, which are getting a lot less attention than our referrals, because they're going to come out uh, uh, in a few days, are going to be pivotal to protecting our democracy going forward. Um, stay with the point you were you were just about to make, I think, Congressman Schiff. After all is said and done, 
Are you confident that January 6th or anything close to January 6th won't happen again, that enough has been done to safeguard our democracy? Uh, no, I, I don't think enough has been done yet. Um, we have had the accounting, that is, we've had the public presentation of a large part of the evidence. Uh, what we haven't done yet is had the justice uh, that I think needs to be meted out, and we haven't had the reform that needs to take place to protect our country going forward. Now, we may get a bit of that reform done in the next few days if we pass changes to the Electoral Count Act that governs the procedures, what happens in that joint session of Congress. But that's really only one of the many steps that need to be taken to protect our democracy. Much like the 9-11 Commission, when it issued its report, its work wasn't done. It wasn't really done until its recommendations were made law. Uh, similarly here, we need to take steps to make it far more difficult for any other demagogue to engage in such destructive conduct. No. In the few seconds we have left, let me turn you to your fellow lawmakers. The decision was announced today to refer members of Congress who ignored congressional subpoenas to refer them to the House, to the House Ethics Committee. What would constitute a satisfactory outcome there? Well, we, we made that judgment, I think, on the basis of two facts. One is uh, we were batting only about 50 percent in referring matters to the Justice Department uh, involving people who are in contempt of Congress. So that was a very imperfect remedy. Uh, but more than that, we also felt we needed to police ourselves, uh, that if members of Congress weren't living up to the, their oath or to lawful process, that uh, Congress ought to take care of that as mm -hmm. a matter for the Ethics Committee. That committee in the new Congress, like in the current Congress, will be equally divided between the parties. We have to hope that they will do their job objectively um, because uh, these lawmakers have been uh, held wanting when it comes to fulfilling their oath of office. Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We are saddened to report the death of a beloved Los Angeles celebrity, a noted advocate for urban wildlife protection. His name was P-22. The P is for Puma. He was euthanized this weekend after suffering injuries following a probable collision with a motor vehicle. And yes, P-22 was a mountain lion who became an icon after he was photographed in National Geographic in 2013. The idea came from photographer Steve Winter. You know... The way to really illustrate urban wildlife would be if we could get a picture of a mountain lion under the Hollywood sign. And Jeff looked at me like I was crazy. Crazy to National Park Service biologist Jeff Sickich, but Steve Winter remembered hearing about mountain lions in L.A. when he was growing up. Then, eight months later... I'm in the dentist chair in New York City, and I get a text in all caps going, Call me now. And I did call him and he said, you're not going to believe this. We just got a trail cam picture of a mountain lion in Griffith Park. Fifteen months after that, P-22 was on the prowl at night when he walked between Winter's remote camera and the Hollywood sign. Today, I asked Steve Winter how he's doing since he heard the news. Well, we knew that he was getting to be an old cat at 12 years old. Um, but you're never prepared, are, are we? Um, I became very close to this cat, and it was a very difficult weekend. And 
this image, it isn't just important because it is this magnificent photo. It also played an incredibly big role in making P-22 famous and also for wildlife preservation. Can you talk about the impact that this image has had? Well, I was blown away. When the Hollywood Cougar was published, there was a groundswell of support. You know, Griffith Park has 24 million visitors every year that come there at the end of the day or the weekend to be in nature, to get away from the noise. So this photo inspired Angelinos and people all around the world. I think it gave them hope because a lot of people don't know L.A. is one of the most biodiverse cities in North America and the world. So it really inspired people. I want to ask you, what do you hope that P-22's legacy will be? You know, it's my hope that California's endangered mountain lions are going to bounce back now and thrive. The groundbreaking was last Earth Day, April 22nd, on the world's largest wildlife overpass, over the 101, 10 lanes of freeway, in a location where a lot of cats try to cross I think we owe it to P-22 and all California wildlife to build more crossings and to connect more habitat. That's what is needed. I mean, then now they're teaching wildlife and, and P-22 in the greater LA school district. And every October 22nd is P-22 day in LA. Yeah. His legacy will live for years and not decades to come. No one's going to forget P-22. It just shows the power of photography that this one image could inspire so many around the world. That was Steve Winter. He's a contributing photographer for National Geographic. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, we'll hear about one of the earliest known women to hand-draw and direct animated films. Also, what Argentina's World Cup soccer victory means to Argentinians around the world. It's We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. Boston Bruins have won three of their last four games and hope to continue the trend tonight as they welcome the Florida Panthers at the Garden. The puck drops at 7 o'clock. Celtics are off until Wednesday. A starlit sky tonight should be clear and dry, falling to about 28 degrees. More dry weather ahead for the next few days. Tomorrow should be sunny, just a few fair weather clouds passing through. Highs about 40 And then more pleasant weather Wednesday, generally sunny, staying around 39 or 40. Could turn milder but cloudier toward the end of the work week. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees now in Boston at 549. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. For most people, obviously, the World Cup is a TV spectacle. It, it doesn't really matter where it is. But both for Qatar and for the sport itself, the things that have captivated the viewing public are really only one aspect of the World Cup. 
There's a lot more at stake here than just which storylines are unfurling on the pitch. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Yesterday was a special day for Argentines. Oh man, where do I even start? I'm finally getting my voice back. That is Julieta Martinelli, a journalist based in Atlanta, where she watched the World Cup final and... I injured my knee against the table, jumping and celebrating. Celebrating the victory of Argentina and their star Lionel Messi over France. Yesterday was an emotional day for millions of Argentines like Julieta around the world. I'm Andres Caballero. I watched the game in Buenos Aires. I'm Lucia Benavides. I'm a writer based in Spain. That's where I watched the final match yesterday in Barcelona. This World Cup has been so special. For the first time, I think, since I've been in the U.S. for over 20 years, it made me feel like... I was still part of, of a community here. It was a roller coaster. There were people who, during the penalty shootouts, were kneeling in between the crowd and just couldn't take it. What makes this the most special is that we all really wanted it for Messi. Um, we all watched how Messi finally lifted the cup. And after that, everybody coming out of their houses. We're talking millions of people. The streets were packed. And in a way, it felt even more special celebrating here than back in Argentina. Walking down the street in a country that's not your own and seeing your home flag. People are struggling right now. And um, when something like this happens, when Argentina wins the World Cup. No matter what horrible thing is happening with the government or the economy or unemployment, soccer has always brought joy, has brought hope to the country. This really feels like a World Cup that belongs to these kind of half Argentines, in between Argentines. Our star, Lionel Messi, he left Argentina at a young age when he was 13. He kept coming back and and fighting for us even though he left. I think there's something really emotional for me as a young person who left home. As anyone who's ever left their home country will tell you, it's very hard to know where you belong and it's very hard to know what to call home. Soccer is the one thing that always still made me feel very much Argentina, even when I was so far away. You know, through the years, even though I've been a soccer fan for a long time, I'd lost that fervor. But yesterday, that all came back. When you think pioneering animator, you think of... Walt Disney, right? I mean, who doesn't? But it turns out his work, in part, was inspired by Bessie Mae Kelly, who you probably haven't heard of. That is because Kelly's early influence has been largely lost to history until now. Earlier this year, animation historian Mindy Johnson was studying a 1920s illustration of animators of the era, all men, when she noticed a woman in the corner of the image. Another historian told her it was probably a secretary or a cleaning lady. But Johnson suspected otherwise, and she was right. Historian Mindy Johnson joins us. Hi there. Hi. So how'd you go about trying to figure out who this woman is? Well, many of our early animators had been involved in vaudeville as well. Windsor McKay, Sidney Smith, and others would do lightning drawings and quick sketches. And I'd had a theory that maybe women were there as well, linked to animation. And sure enough, that's how I 
initially found Bessie. And then in further researching and learning that she had had this rich past at the very beginning of the industry of animation and did some early character designs that had influence on others, but nobody would have known. There were no records really outside of her own material, her own scrapbook and her own journal. As you started to touch on it, it's it's such a cliche, this talented woman who was there at the beginning, right there, <laughs> and basically got just written out, erased from history. Is that common in animation, common in film? It's common in film. It's common in life in general. <laughs> Women's <laughs> stories that, yeah. just are not told. We, we look back to our past collectively, and it's typically the story of men. And yet we've had incredible accomplished women who have moved <laughs> industry and our world forward, but we have sort of a myopic view when we look back historically. And that's what I my research involves, and I hope to change things. So now I'm so curious about Bessie Mae Kelly. I gather she uh, created and animated a mouse couple, um, which yes. this was years before Mickey and <laughs> Minnie, and it was this huge thing. Yes. She was working on the Paul Terry Aesop's Fables, and the early Fables cartoons created were based on the classic Aesop's Fables with an animated twist featuring many anthropomorphized animals. And she was asked to create a couple. And so hers were named Roderick and Gladys. They ended up changing them, very much akin to the later legend of Mickey and Minnie, but um, they had changed the names to Milton and Mary. Ah, and okay. They did appear in her earliest examples were about 1921. And Walt Disney is on record as saying that when he began his studio in Kansas City, he wanted to make cartoons as good as the Aesop's Fables. Oh, I wanted to ask about that because I had mentioned that Kelly's work inspired Walt Disney. And I wondered, how do we know that? What do we know about that? Well, we don't have exact proof, but she herself uh, would use that reference. Later on in the 1920s, she went to vaudeville and was on the circuits, traveling across the country as the only woman animator. That was her billing. And she cart her trunk with her giant easel and paper stock and pens and charcoals and would educate across the country on how animated cartoons were made. And in many of the write-ups of her billing, it's referenced that Walt Disney himself, later in the 20s after Mickey and Minnie were very popular, that her work had originated years before him, but that he was influenced by the work that appeared in the Aesop's Fables. I can hear how satisfying this work is to you. I can hear it in your voice. And I imagine there's great satisfaction in fleshing out and completing the historical record. Do you also do this work with at least one eye toward the future and women, young women out there joining the field today and that hopefully more of them will once they yes, know what the history is? Absolutely. It makes a difference when we see ourselves. Um, for my students, I can see them standing a little taller and more confident about their work and where they're headed when they know that the pathway has been paved. 
if we don't know that, you know, there's an extra burden of struggle trying to figure out how do we how do we break through. But once they learn that women have always been there, they've always been in the room, they can move forward. That is animation historian Mindy Johnson. She is the author of Ink and Paint, the Women of Walt Disney's Animation. Thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. 36 degrees now in the Boston area. Should fall to the high 20s overnight tonight. Some gusty winds around. Tomorrow still windy. Should be sunny and dry again. Maybe some fair weather clouds right about 40 degrees again. And then same thing for Wednesday. Sunny skies right about 40. Could see some gray and rainy weather move in toward the end of the week. Boston Bruins have won three of their last four games. Hope to continue the trend tonight as they welcome the Panthers to the Garden. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House January 6th committee today recommended that the Justice Department charge former President Donald Trump with federal crimes. We have gone where the facts and the law lead us, and inescapably, they lead us here. The four criminal charges in the committee's final hearing coming up. It's Monday, December 19th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also had efforts to preserve the only outdoor recreational space in Boston's Chinatown have hit a snag. The discovery of asbestos in the soil has slowed talks between community groups and the state. They said, well, we'll give you the lease, but if you do anything to improve the park, then you're responsible for remediating the hazardous waste. Also ahead, Anderson Cooper on his podcast, All There Is, an exploration of grief and loss. It's 6.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House January 6th committee is out with its recommendation of criminal charges against former President Donald Trump and his allies. The historic vote coming in terms of Trump's connection to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Representative Liz Cheney, one of two Republicans on the panel, cited the ex-president's actions that day as an utter moral failure. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office 
watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. The charges recommended by the group include conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to make a false statement, and aiding an insurrection. Ukraine says Russia fired 35 explosive drones at targets across the country early today. While most were shot down, NPR's Julian Haidar reports Ukraine is fending off attacks like this more frequently. Kyiv has been the center of Russian airstrikes for more than two months now. At first, the strikes were about a week apart. Military analysts said that's just about how long it takes for Russia to regroup between volleys, giving Ukrainians a chance to repair. Not this week, though. Russia has hurled over 100 drones and missiles at Kyiv on three occasions since last Wednesday. Ukraine intercepts the overwhelming majority of them, but the ones that get through affect utilities for millions of people. That frequency makes it difficult for engineers to keep people warm and streets lit. Ukraine's power grid operator says it's going to take days to stabilize the network, barring another strike. Julian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Confusion in a courtroom in the Bahamas today after a lawyer for the founder and former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX reportedly told a judge he was shocked Sam Bankman-Fried was not going to fight his extradition to the U.S. NPR's David Gura has more. Federal prosecutors have charged Sam Bankman-Fried with orchestrating a massive fraud that led to the collapse of FTX, which is headquartered in the Bahamas, and they've requested he be extradited to the U.S., the U.S. and the Bahamas have an extradition treaty, but at Bankman-Fried's first hearing, his legal team said he'd fight to stay in the Bahamas. The judge denied his request for bail. After a week in jail, Bankman-Fried seemed to change his mind. He was expected to end his fight against extradition at today's hearing, but his lawyers reportedly claimed they didn't request the hearing. The judge called a 45-minute recess, then adjourned it so that Bankman-Fried could confer with his U.S. attorneys about the eight-count indictment filed in the Southern District of New York. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Stocks continue to tumble today following last week's downdraft, with investors growing increasingly worried about recession risks heading toward the new trading year. The Dow was down 162 points today to 32,757. The Nasdaq fell 159 points. The Standard & Poor's 500 dropped 34 points. You are listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court has ruled that it's not legal for doctors to prescribe medication to help terminally ill patients end their lives. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The ruling, written by Justice Frank Gaziano, says doctors can be prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter if they help patients end their lives. The ruling says the high court recognizes the limits of the judiciary in deciding such questions, which it says are best left to lawmakers and informed by, quote, robust public debate. So-called medical aid in dying bills have stalled in the legislature before. This case was brought by two Massachusetts doctors one of whom has cancer and said he wanted to be able to legally end his life if death became imminent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are echoing the conclusions of the U.S. House January 6th committee. This afternoon, the committee recommended former President Donald Trump face four federal criminal charges. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted that no one is above the law, not even a former president. Congressman Jake Auchincloss said Trump must never again hold public office and should be prosecuted. Trump is a candidate for president in 2024. Massachusetts Gaming Commission has approved a sports betting license for MGM Springfield.
Today's vote marks the second time the commission has granted a sports betting retail license. Encore Boston Harbor in Everett received the first earlier this month. And the city of Boston is launching a $14.5 million program to expand music education for its youngest students. The program is funded by a grant secured by the New England Conservatory of Music. The funds will be used to offer more classes and provide instruments to children. Mostly clear skies tonight, dipping to just below 30. Tomorrow, a good deal of sunshine, dry and brisk. Highs right about 39 or 40. The gray weather should hold off until Thursday. Still 36 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The House January 6th panel has officially referred former President Donald Trump for criminal charges related to the attack on the Capitol and Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss. The Democratic-led panel today outlined a series of charges it is sending to the Department of Justice. Benny Thompson, a Mississippi Democrat, is the panel's chair, and he said this about Trump. He lost the 2020 election and knew it, but he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. Let's discuss this news with NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson and Congressional Correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Hello to both of you. Hi there. Hey, Juana. Okay, so let's start by walking through what happened today. The panel discussed its findings, much of which we had already heard, and Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland ultimately named the referrals. Here's part of what he said. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. So, Carrie, what were the charges outlined against former President Trump today? There were four charges that were mentioned at this public hearing. The first is obstruction of an official proceeding. The second is conspiracy to defraud the United States. The third is conspiracy to make a false statement. And the fourth is to incite, assist, or aid and comfort an insurrection. Let's unpack this a little bit. Carrie, what stands out to you about that? insurrection is rarely used and is a very serious political and legal matter. Congressman Jamie Raskin called it a, quote, grave federal offense and said nothing could be a greater betrayal of a president's duty. The last prosecution I found for insurrection was in the Civil War era. One of the other charts that stands out is the conspiracy to make a false statement. That relates to the scheme to substitute slates of fake electors in 2020. We know the Justice Department has been very active on that front, sending out lots of subpoenas. The committee has had documents from law professor John Eastman that may incriminate both him and Donald Trump. What about for you, Deirdre? I know we've been wondering about these criminal referrals for some time now. We have, and there was a lot of internal debate inside the January 6th committee about how many individuals they would refer. Throughout these public hearings, though, members of the committee have really been hammering home the theme that then President Trump was really the central player behind the effort to overturn the 2020 election results. 
Vice Chair Liz Cheney today said the evidence they outlined shows Trump should be disqualified. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. But we should note these criminal referrals by the January 6th committee are largely symbolic. The committee can't prosecute it. But several members have been saying in the days leading up to today's final hearing that there are a lot of individuals who were at the Capitol on January 6th who have been sentenced to jail time for trespassing, assaulting police officers, destroying property. But they say the masterminds of the scheme needed to be held accountable. So, Carrie, to you on the investigative side, what happens next now? You know, we have multiple grand juries in federal court in Washington, D.C. that are marching forward. Much of this work is done in secrecy, so we don't know exactly what DOJ is doing and when. There has been a flurry of subpoenas on the slates of fake electors and to state officials who were harassed by Trump and Rudy Giuliani, his lawyer, and to state officials who seem to cooperate with Donald Trump. Justice has already compelled some key figures to talk in the grand jury, like Trump's White House counsel. And the new special counsel, Jack, Smith has been busy working. He says the pace of investigations will not slow or flag under his watch. And we also learned about some referrals to the House Ethics Committee against a number of lawmakers. Deirdre, what can you tell us about that? Right. There were five House Republicans who were subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and Ohio Republican Jim Jordan were among those. They both talked to Trump on January 6th and have publicly talked about their conversations with him. Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry, Arizona Republican Andy Biggs were in touch with some of the outside attorneys and justice officials who were in discussions about this plot not to certify the 2020 election. Those four House Republicans were referred to the House Ethics Committee today for sanctions for not complying with the committee's subpoenas. But really, in reality, the session of Congress is about to wrap up at the end of the year, and the House Ethics Committee is not likely to take any action against these four House Republicans. The panel is evenly divided by four House Republicans, four House Democrats, and Republicans, even if they had time, would not likely vote to to proceed with any real investigation. So, Carrie, in addition to the four referred charges that you laid out earlier in our conversation, the panel raised the idea of seditious conspiracy in its report. What did it say? This didn't come up at the televised hearing, but in the written summary, the committee mentioned the seditious conspiracy statute, and that involves trying to overthrow the government by using force. The committee said DOJ has more tools than Congress, like subpoena power and uh, the use of the grand jury to compel people's testimony, and the Justice Department may have enough evidence to prosecute former President Trump for seditious conspiracy. You know, just last month, a jury here in D.C. convicted Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and his deputy. Kelly Meggs of seditious conspiracy. Members of the far-right group the Proud Boys also face that charge. Wanna, even if the Justice Department does not wind up charging Donald Trump with seditious conspiracy, the whole idea that the word sedition is in the same sentence as a man who occupied the Oval Office says something pretty serious about where we are right now. So Deirdre, how have Republicans responded? I mean, most Republicans have been dismissing the January 6th committee as partisan. I heard from Jim Jordan, spokesman on the ethics referral. He called it, quote, a partisan and political stunt. For his part, former President Trump has been on social media today focused on border issues. He's already been casting doubt on the Justice Department's probe. All along, Trump has criticized this House committee. He's called it the unselect committee. He's called it a witch hunt. 
So it's sort of more of the same in terms of Republican response today. And Deirdre, before I let you go, you were there for the hearing. Um, This is a hearing from a panel that's almost done, that's set to expire next Congress. Four of the committee members are not returning next Congress. What was it like today? It was actually pretty subdued in in the hearing compared to earlier public hearings. I mean, they were sort of wrapping up all of the evidence they've been putting together over the last 18 months. As you said, they don't really have much time left before the panel expires at the end of the year. Raskin said he thought they did a comprehensive job. Mm-hmm. I think one lasting impact is this committee really changed the format for congressional hearings. It was very effective at creating a narrative, okay. something you usually don't see um, in, at congressional hearings. NPR's Deirdre Walsh and Carrie Johnson, thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. The pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 may not end this week as planned. The U.S. Supreme Court has granted an 11th hour request by a group of Republican attorneys general who want to extend those restrictions. The high court put a temporary hold on a lower court ruling that found Title 42 unlawful. And it's happening as the number of migrants crossing the southern border has been climbing, putting pressure on local communities. NPR's Joel Rose is following all this and joins us now from El Paso. Hey there. Hey. So, Joel, remind us, what is Title 42 and why was it set to end this week? Sure. These are the pandemic era restrictions put in place originally by the Trump administration that allow immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants at the border without giving them a chance to seek asylum. After a lengthy legal fight, a federal judge in Washington, D.C. declared the policy illegal because it denies migrants a chance to seek protection in the U.S. and ordered the Biden administration to end it. That is scheduled to, was scheduled to happen in just a few days, excuse me, on Wednesday. But a group of Republican attorneys general from 19 states have been seeking to extend Title 42. They've taken their appeal all the way to the Supreme Court, which has now put that ruling on hold, at least temporarily. So, Joel, tell us, what does the Supreme Court order say exactly? It's very brief, you know, just one page from Chief Justice John Roberts, and it says that the lower court ruling is stayed for the moment. It asks the Justice Department and other parties in the case for a response by 5 p.m. Tuesday. That's not a long time. It suggests that the Chief Justice wants to move quickly here to decide whether to extend Title 42 for a longer time, possibly until the entire appeal is resolved, which is what the states would like, or allow the restrictions to end sometime sooner. Okay, and just tell us, what does this mean in practical terms? Well, it almost certainly means that Title 42 restrictions will not end on Wednesday as scheduled, although I guess technically that's still possible. Beyond that, it's hard to say with certainty. We've already seen a significant spike in the number of migrants crossing the border. This Supreme Court stay likely won't you know, change anything for migrants who are already on their way to the border. In places like El Paso, where I am, thousands of migrants have been crossing the border in recent days in anticipation of Title 42 ending. The mayor here declared a state of emergency with shelters overflowing and and some migrants sleeping on the streets. The city is now standing up several mass shelters to respond to what they're calling a crisis. Uh, Communities up and down the border have also been preparing for a possible influx of migrants whenever Title 42 does end. You know, and it's not just the border. Cities around the country are also preparing for big numbers of migrants to arrive, including New York, which has been a major destination for migrants arriving this year. And Joel, the White House, what has the Biden administration been doing in response? The administration has asked for upwards of $3 billion in emergency funding to deal with the border. And it's also reported to be weighing some major changes to the asylum system that would restrict who can apply for asylum at the border 
while trying to encourage migrants to apply for asylum from outside the U.S. and not to cross the border illegally. But administration officials have not made any formal announcements yet about what they are planning. Uh, you know, and this situation with the Supreme Court is likely to further push back any announcement on those changes, you know, at least until we get more clarity about what is next with Title 42. NPR's Joel Rose reporting from El Paso. Joel, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the issue that's so far holding up preservation of the last recreational park in Boston's Chinatown. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Stocks closed lower for fourth day today. The Dow lost about a half percent, 163 points, to end the day at 32,758. S&P was down by nine-tenths of a percent to finish at 38.19. The Nasdaq fell nearly one and a half percent to end the day at 10,546. Average price of gasoline in the state has dropped nine cents in the past week. The latest survey by AAA Northeast puts the statewide average at 3.45 a gallon. That's more than 30 cents higher than the national average. In Boston, the average is 3.49 cents, $3.49. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Boston Bruins are back in action tonight. They're at the Garden to host the Florida Panthers, 7 o'clock game time. Celtics are off until Wednesday. Should have a starlit sky tonight, clear and dry, falling to about 28 degrees. More dry weather ahead for the next couple of days. Wednesday should be sunny with just a fair, few fair weather clouds passing through. Highs about 40. Uh, that is for tomorrow and Wednesday, pretty much the same thing. Pretty pleasant, generally sunny, staying around 39 or 40 degrees. 36 degrees now in Boston at 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Community groups are inching closer to securing a long-awaited agreement with the state to formally lease Reggie Wong Park. Reggie Wong Park is the only outdoor recreational space in Boston's Chinatown, but after years of negotiation, there's a holdup. There are environmental hazards left over from the big dig and disagreement on who should fix them. WBR's Amy Moon reports this is standing in the way of protecting what has been a core part of the community for decades. This piece of land is ours. This is our park. In a video from October shared online, Norman Ang is speaking out into a crowd of community members at Reggie Wong Park, demanding a lease from the state. 
The small recreational park near South Station is owned by the Department of Transportation and is the center of an ongoing battle for open space in Chinatown. From this day forward, we want to make sure that we have control. Thank you. Reggie Wong Park is a third of an acre next to an old steam plant in I-93. It has a few basketball hoops and a court for playing volleyball. In an interview, Norman says you can smell the highway exhaust from the courts, but he considers the park his second home. Well, because it's all that we have left. (laughs) It's our one sacred space. He's played volleyball in Chinatown since he was 14 years old. It's just kind of disappointing to see the park still not secured for long term. Norman says it's just part of the long struggle over land in Chinatown. In the 1950s and 60s, the state displaced thousands of residents from their homes to make way for major infrastructure projects like the Central Artery. The park and surrounding area are one of the last remaining sites to be cleaned up after the big dig. And in 2016, the area was put up for development. That's when the community started organizing to formally lease the park from the DOT. Russell Eng, who has no relation to Norman, is a president of the nonprofit Friends of Reggie Wong Park. We just want to lease the land, make it better, and make it playable for the neighborhoods. He says in 2019, the community was close to signing an agreement with the DOT that would lease the land for $1 a year. Then, with the COVID pandemic and leadership changes, Russell says they didn't hear from the DOT for three years. That was until last April, when the state notified them that there was asbestos in the soil and that the terms of the lease would change. They said, well, we'll give you the lease, but if you do anything to improve the park, then you're responsible for remediating the hazardous waste. And we're like, how, how can that be? Representatives from the DOT declined to be interviewed, but said in an email that it's working with the state's Department of Environmental Protection to remediate the asbestos. But Russell says the two parties have not yet been able to agree on how much cleanup the DOT will be responsible for. Friends of Rejuwang Park has secured at least $250,000 in federal funds to improve the park. But their hands are tied, says nonprofit board member Catherine Friedman. We can't make any park improvements until we have a lease, and we can't have a lease until there's been some remediation. So we have this space here that is not necessarily safe. It's not unusual for these types of negotiations to take years, according to Ezra Glenn, who teaches urban studies and planning at MIT. He says it's complicated when there are both city and state agencies involved. This is a weird thing where the state owns land in the city, and DOT was not created to provide parks for the city of Boston. Glenn is not involved in the negotiations, but says if the state keeps it as a park for the community, it foregoes the potential income for other public projects. But just because something is prime real estate does not mean that it should be given over to developers. That's City Council President Ed Flint, who represents Chinatown and has been supporting the community's effort to secure open space. What we don't want to see is after the lease is up, the park be developed into luxury condos for the wealthy. This community deserves better. One way to keep the park would be to have it legally designated a public park. It would then be protected by the state's constitution. But Russell says the current lease terms specifically state that the DOT will not permanently recognize Reggie Wong Park as protected land. That's the thing about being in Chinatown, right? You don't get to negotiate with the with the government. They negotiate for you. Like when they actually split Chinatown in half, right? To put the surface artery there. Representatives from Boston's Planning and Development Agency, Parks, and Environment Departments all declined to interview on the subject. 
Chief of Environment Maruyama White-Hammond said in an email that the city, quote, appreciates the community's advocacy for more park space. Russell says other than Councillor Flynn, representatives from the city stopped attending meetings over a year ago. The nonprofit is meeting with the DOT tomorrow to discuss soil remediation. Even if the negotiations fall through, Russell says the community will continue to use the park as it has for 50 years. We'd rather play and continue our community presence and community traditions there, and we'll deal with the health factors and stuff like that afterwards. Come January, Russell says he'll work with the new administration to secure the park for Chinatown's future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon. Now that the World Cup trophy is in Argentine hands, it and the team who won it are making the 21-hour journey from Doha to Buenos Aires. They're headed home to celebrate with fans. On Sunday afternoon, Argentina and its superstar player, Lionel Messi, claimed the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Prior to the tournament, Messi had already announced this would be his last World Cup. NPR's Jasmine Garst is host of the podcast, The Last Cup, a series that is part part messy biopic, part memoir. Hey there, Jasmine. Hi. Hi. So yesterday, such a great game, like edge of your seat to the very last second. Um, Great soccer, but speak to why it's such a historic deal, such a big deal. Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, despite being a country where soccer is the religion, pretty much, uh, Argentina hasn't won the World Cup in a really long time. Uh, Also, I might add, Latin America hasn't won a cup in 20 years. As you mentioned, it's Lionel Messi's last World Cup, or so he said. He's one of the best soccer players to have ever lived, but he's never won that title up until now. Um, But not having won that title led to like a really strained relationship with Argentina for a long time. Yeah, just stay with that point for a second, because a lot of people might not know that until pretty recently, Messi was, was not so popular in his home country. Yeah, he was constantly compared to Diego Maradona, who was like the original Argentine soccer god. Uh, Maradona won a World Cup in 1986. And honestly, up until recently, Messi did not perform so well with Argentina. He was seen, geez, almost as like a hack, like a guy (laughs) who played well as long as he was with a European club, but never with us. Is it safe to say that yesterday may have moved him beyond the hack category for most people in Argentina? Oh, I think it changed before yesterday. I mean, it took years, but people started to really see Messi for the athlete he is and just how much he wanted to win for his home country. Um, You know, Argentina also got an excellent coach who surrounded Messi with a team that actually played like a team and didn't just expect Messi to do everything. So yes, Messi is absolutely now in the pantheon of Argentine soccer gods. Step back, Jasmine, and speak to the impact more broadly of this World Cup, of the game yesterday. It felt to me anecdotally like a lot of people here in the States were watching and were glued to it, which is maybe not something you would have seen 20 years ago for the World Cup. Um, Do you see the growth of soccer in the U.S. continuing, the growth, you know, driven in part by, by immigrant population? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think that soccer, soccer is is no longer just an immigrant sport. I think 
soccer has gone way beyond that. I mean, every World Cup I have gone to this time around here in New York, I had to like elbow my way past American fans who like maybe didn't speak Spanish or weren't immigrants. I just had to make my way through. I think we can safely say football has arrived has. and it probably arrived a long time ago. Yeah. Real quick in a sentence or two, what's Lionel Messi? Where's he going next? There's rumors of Inter-Miami, the soccer club, and he said he'd love to pay, play for Argentina again. So who knows? Maybe it isn't his last cup after all. <laughs> all right. Maybe round two of another podcast series for you. And here's <laughs> Jasmine Guards. Thank you so much for your reporting for your great podcast, The Last Cup. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving. In Melrose and at BuckaloosGeneralStore.com.